For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Wise men follow him, they rose again. Wise men follow him, thank God for the renegades. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook, 96.5 FM and in Brewer in Bangor, Maine. You'll be hearing this on Saturday, October 2nd. October already. Gas price today is two dollars and nine cents a gallon in Orono. Last year it was three dollars and twenty-seven cents. Gas price is two dollars and ninety-four cents in New Gloucester. Last year it was three dollars and sixty-eight cents in Portland. Diesel is two twenty-five in Sanford. Last year it was 3.59 in Buxton, and diesel is 2.69 today all over Lower Maine. Lots of different stations, all 2.69. Last year it was four dollars and 28 cents in Old Orchard. That's almost two dollars a gallon cheaper uh, than last year. Diesel dropping down, and there are several reasons. One. The primary reason is lack of demand. You don't need to move a lot of freight. You're not going to sell a lot of diesel. So in order to keep the refineries running efficiently, they have to lower the price. And, you know, a barrel of oil gets fractionated into into uh, a lot of different things. And you'll see at some oil wells, with stacks and a flame at the top because oil is under a great deal of pressure down deep in the well. And when initially many wells, when they're drilled, come up as a gusher flowing right out of the ground and then you have to pump it. Well, as it comes up, it fizzes just like like uh, Coca-Cola or a can of beer when you open it. It fizzes and gas escapes. Well, that's carbon dioxide in soft drinks and in beer. But in petroleum, the gas that fizzes is propane, butane, methane, various other lighter gases. And they flash off at atmospheric pressure. Now, if you can capture this in, and pump it into a pipeline, when it gets to the other end of the pipe, it's still there. And it gets to a refinery, and they pump it into a refinery under light pressure, you know, like 
you know, what's the pressure in a can of, of uh, Coca-Cola or a can of beer? And when you pop it, it fizzes, and they can capture those lighter gases. Propane is one of those lighter gases. So they capture it. But in order to keep propane in a in a usable form, you have to compress it. And propane in a, in a tank at your house is under 160 pounds of pressure. Now, that varies with temperature and things, but it's roughly 160 PSI inside that tank. The propane truck you see going down the road, a great big truck with, with domes on each end of the tank, is under 160 pounds. More in the summertime, a little less in the wintertime. And then... Uh, Let's see. The propane is under 160 pounds of pressure. In order to have liquid, propane is sold by the pound or by the gallon. And either way, it's the same. Because when it's in a liquid state, a gallon weighs so many pounds. It's a little lighter than gasoline. Gasoline is 6.4 pounds per gallon. Diesel is 6.8 pounds per gallon. Excuse me. Had to sneeze. It's been coming. <laughs> so, when pilots know this, they don't have to look it up because the weight of the gasoline or the fuel in the airplane is determines how much you can lift as a, as a useful load. So, if you fill the tanks on the airplane, like a Cessna 172, for example, you top off both tanks, you can't put four big bruisers in that Cessna and take off. It's too heavy. And it's not certified for that, that gross weight. Gross weight is weight of everything. The airplane, the fuel, all the gear you have in it, the oil in the engine, and the people. And the plane is rated for a maximum gross weight. And you have to stay under that in order to fly safely. Now, people overload their airplanes and take off with too much weight. But if you get into a into a, a mountain wave like east of Mount Washington, you may not be able to produce enough power to keep from being blown down into the treetops, which would ruin the whole afternoon. So all aircraft are tested by test pilots. And they develop all this data and say, well, how much can we lift with this thing? Well, they have slide rules and stuff, and now the computers, but the Apollo space capsule was designed by with slide rules. My brother-in-law worked on the fuel measurement system for the Apollo, Apollo space capsule. But with uh, with aircraft, whether it's a, a helicopter or a fixed-wing aircraft, or a hot air balloon, you know, it 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 will provide its own lift. Hot air balloon does it by by reducing the weight of the air. So there's enough hot air, which is very light, which will lift the balloon. First hot air balloons were uh, were done in Europe. They made uh, they were made out of paper, very light. And uh, Montgolfier in France uh, did the first flight of a human being in a hot air balloon. 
I don't know whether he did it himself or whether he <laughs> convinced somebody else to go up in it, but uh, he invented it. So back to fuel for a minute. The demand for fuel is down simply because we don't need to move and move as much freight. Well, there's lots of freight that we'd like to have, all kinds of stuff. But when the purchasing power of the population goes down, they don't buy as much stuff. And when they don't buy as much stuff, you don't need to move as much stuff. You don't need to buy as much petroleum. And it just is the ripple effect of having 94 million Americans between the age of 18 and 65 not working is huge. These folks are not buying a lot of stuff. They're buying food and fuel, and they're buying used cars, and they're buying a lot of used car parts. Uh, you know, Places like Napa are doing rel- relatively well. They're not selling a lot of fancy doodads that go on cars, but they're buying spare parts, generators and alternators. As vehicles get older and older, the need for for you know, replacement parts goes up. So those those folks are doing well. Uh, boat marinas are not doing well because, in most cases, boats are luxury items. Now, by the way, speaking of boats, the entire coast of Maine is shut down to shell fishing. It'll clear up pretty soon because the ocean currents are going to take it out. But we had this deluge uh, in southern Maine, and uh, both, actually all of Maine, got a pretty big deluge except the western mountains. They, they didn't get as much, but everything within 100 miles of the coast, which is a whole lot of Maine, had a deluge of, they said, two to five inches. One town got 12 inches. Portland got seven inches. The storm just kind of slowed down and sat over Portland, flooded a lot of streets. In Lincoln, it flooded West Broadway because I had to run to Bangor and do some business. It came back up, and West Broadway was flooded about a foot deep. People were just crawling along. Look at the diesel truck. So I'm not as worried about it. And I don't have an ignition system, so I don't have to worry about shorting up my ignition system and having the vehicle die in the middle of a puddle. But on the coast of Maine, all that runoff went down the rivers and out into the ocean. And a whole lot of waste treatment plants uh, had sewage, raw sewage, untreated, flow overflow the plant and go downstream and out into the ocean. So a whole lot of human waste went out into the ocean. they got to wait for that to, to flow away. The Gulf Stream comes up along off of Cape Cod and up east of Nova Scotia and continues on east and goes all the way around the Atlantic and back. But the Labrador Current comes down out of Labrador and slides underneath the Gulf Stream and actually goes into the Gulf of Maine. So the Gulf of Maine's got warm water on top and cold water down below. And it'll flow out of out of the Gulf of Maine, out of the Maine coast and, and uh People that know more about shellfish than I do certainly will decide when it's okay to eat the shellfish. 
They'll fish clean water. They draw in lots of, uh, they draw in vast amounts of water every day. And, and they sift out the life that's in it, and they expel the water, draw in more water. And they're, they're a, a natural filtering machine that cleans water. And they're fussy. Uh, fishermen like to see freshwater clams on the bottom because if you've got freshwater clams in your body of water, they, uh, it tells you the lake is very clean or the river. The Northcott River is, is uh, quite clean and, and getting even cleaner. Several years ago, there was there were a total of nine pulp and paper mills on the Penobscot. A couple of them were just pulp mills. They were groundwood mills. They made quantities of groundwood and shipped their groundwood by rail to other other mills. So they didn't make paper. They weren't paper mills. They were just pulp mills. But the one furthest upstream was Millinocket. And then they built East Millinocket. And I won't name them all the way down through, but in the past week, Lincoln uh, filed for bankruptcy, Lincoln Mill. And it's Lincoln uh, Paper and Tissue now. It's changed names a number of times over the years as the economy uh, cycles. In the paper industry, uh, when the price of paper goes up, marginal mills jump in and they produce more and more paper until the price of paper drops down. And that's the nature. It's supply and demand, and it's a free economy. The paper industry is not regulated by government controls as far as production goes and product goes, as is many other industries, not like coal, for example. just can't jump in and start selling more coal. So... We've got a whole lot of freight capacity shut down, just idle. And one of the reasons, as I said, is low demand. But a lot of commodities and products are still in demand, will always be in demand. And one problem we have in our nation is getting qualified truck drivers. We train them at at the various uh, regional schools in Maine regional vocational schools, and they turn out a few truck drivers every year. Some of them go into work, go at work as over-the-road truck drivers. They'll get some local experience. Once they have a Class 1 federal license, they they, uh, go to work driving locally, and then, then they'll go over the road. And a lot of them stay with it for their whole careers. I had a uh, I got a neighbor who is driving. Seventy-eight and a half years old. He retired several years ago, and he was retired for a couple of years. He went hunting and fishing and riding around, visiting the family, different places in the country. He knows all the roads, knows every single road and interstate. Doesn't need a map. <laughs> Doesn't need a GPS. He just knows it. And he was asked to come back to work by a trucking company in Maine. He says, yes, you know, why do you want me to come back? 
They said, we've got to find somebody that can pass a drug test any, way that, any day of the week. This guy can pee in the bottle and be clear. If you pee in the bottle at a truck stop in Iowa, or Indiana, or Tennessee, anywhere in the country, and you fail your drug test, you're done. They impound the truck until they get somebody down there that can, that can pass. That truck doesn't move. And the guy who flunked his his uh, drug test loses his license for six months. Six months. Then you go pee in the bottle, and if you're clear after six months of sitting home watching TV, then you can get your Class 1 license back. During the six months that he's, that he's uh, off work, some of them will drive a logging truck on short hauls. Some of them will will drive a dump truck for somebody, or various other things. You know, they'll find some work. But in some states, I don't know the answer to this in Maine. In some states, if you flunk a drug test, you don't get any unemployment. You made that choice. Now, if you if you had some surgery, and you're taking oxycodone or something. And it's justified. It says right on the bottle, do not operate heavy equipment while taking this medication. I don't know what the rule is in that case. But, you know, in some states, will allow recreational use of marijuana. And some states prescribe it through these, what they call, uh, what do they call them in Maine? They call the people that sell it caregivers, okay? They don't prescribe anything, and they don't take care of people. All they do is sell pot. And you can make it as official and as you want, but that's what's happening. They've got It's authorized in Maine, but it's not authorized for driving a tractor-trailer. Don't fall into that trap. The weather, Saturday, mostly sunny, high near 55. Saturday night, low around 36. We had 38 here this morning at the camp by the lake. Sunday, mostly sunny, high near 57. Monday, mostly sunny, high near 58. Tuesday, mostly sunny, high near 60. Wednesday, mostly sunny, high near 62. Thursday, mostly sunny with a high near 59. Well, here we go. We got seven, well, counting today, you know, this is recorded on Friday, so it's supposed to be partly cloudy. And then next six days, mostly sunny, between 55 and 60 for the most part, the daytime. Beautiful fall days. Things will dry out. No mention whatever in the Caribou Maine forecast for the next week of Hurricane Joaquin. And they were speculating on on TV yesterday that uh, we don't have any TV at camp, but I had to stop at the house and I turned on Fox News when I'm there just for the entertainment. And uh, I turn it back off when I'm leaving. But they were saying that this thing could come up and hit the Carolinas and Virginia. And even if they don't get 
last three or four winds, it's going to dump a lot of rain wherever it goes. If all that rain is out in the ocean, well, that's a fine thing. And ships and airplanes are just going to have to avoid it. People's travel plans and reservations are going to be disrupted. Great New England hurricane came up through here in October of 1938, and it was huge. Dumped an immense, a lot of big old trees, huge big elm trees and maple trees and city parks, and yeah, were blown over. Weren't any chainsaws in 1938? <laughs> they had a heck of a cleanup. They had big trucks with chains ripping limbs off and dragging them out of the road just to get the rope the roads open. They'd pull the limb away from the trunk and bend it and crack it and break it. And, and then they got people out there with crosscut saws to get it small enough to lift up into a, into a dump truck and haul it off. Dump trucks in 1938 were not like the ones we have today. So my parents uh, went through it. Their house was on nice and high, no flooding, not even in the cellar. But people in the valleys had, uh, there were a lot of homes lost, huge runoff. Some earthen dams that were built, earthen dam is, is like an overgrown beaver dam. It was just sitting there on the ground. Water can seep under it, and it did. Once it seeped under it enough, and the water running over the top of the dam caused enough vibration, it's just like wet concrete. And it would quiver and shake, and all of a sudden it would just let go, the whole thing. One end or the middle or something. Down she'd go. That whole lake, or that section of river, whatever it was, we go roaring down through to the next man-made dam. And it went down like a string of dominoes. And there was vast property damage. The whole downtown of some towns just was washed right out. It was a lot of loss of life. I probably should have researched it a little more, but this was in October of 1938, so you can't have, can have hurricanes in October. And what they called the Great New England Hurricane, it didn't hit Virginia. It didn't hit, you know, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey. I mean, New Jersey got some heavy rains, some wind, but not much. It clobbered the east end of Long Island. And it went right up uh, east of the Connecticut River, right up through middle of Massachusetts, east of the Connecticut River, began to swing uh, northeast a little bit and went up east of Concord, New Hampshire and uh, clobbered Portland and clobbered Augusta and right up through. I don't know where it exited Maine, but it, it was a huge, dangerous storm. What we had this past week with between 4 and 12 inches of rain in Maine uh, was a, was a small occurrence compared with what that great New England hurricane. We didn't lose any dams this week. The lakes are low. My lake came up about six or seven inches, and uh, that's a good thing. It was low. So it's uh, 
we've gone all year without a hurricane hitting our country so far. And we may get a, this Joaquin may hit the Carolinas and Virginia seriously. And it could hang in there close enough to hit Long Island and Massachusetts and maybe southern Maine. But there's no mention of it in this forecast. What I do when I I save these programs uh, and the data, the weather data, is saved the by the, by the date. So this this one is uh, is dated October third, two thousand fifteen, ten two fifteen. Show that's the name of the file. And when I call it up, when I do a search. I don't have them in one big folder. I just do a search for it. And I called it up, and there was last year's first week of October show. So that's where I got. That's why I mentioned uh, last year's gas prices. And last a year ago, uh, the National Weather Service had announced that we are. Uh, entering what they said was a long, difficult period of cold. And they said the planet fixated on global warming is not prepared for the real climate crisis that's already here. A pronounced cold spell that could last another 30 years and cause damage to the world's crops. Hmm. Pope says we're going into a warming period. Scientists say we're going into a cooling period. We're going to have weather. <laughs> Nobody really knows what the weather is going to be, but we've, we're have we due for a cooling period. The, uh, the, uh, back in the 50s, I remember the 50s very well. Jack does. Steve doesn't remember the 50s. But Jack does. And we had some real bad winters. And it was cold. I mean, in 1983, when I moved into the house where I live now, we went three weeks. Temperature never went above zero. Not just above freezing. It never went above zero for three weeks. I said, holy mackerel. That was our first or second winter in that house. When I bought the house... Uh, I'd never bought an old house before. I bought, I bought uh, a few houses, but never never bought an old house. And when I bought that house, there wasn't one grid of insulation in the walls, none. What the old-timers did is they put wood into the wood stove as necessary. When I'm sitting in a camp beside the lake, and it was 36 degrees this morning, and in camp, 76 degrees. Toasty warm with the wood stove going. And there's no insulation in this camp. You pile the wood to the wood stove, and they can be just as warm as you want. And that's what the old-timers did. They just put the wood in the wood stove until somebody complained, and then they'd back off a little bit. Somebody would get up during the night. Whoever whoever got chilly, they'd put some wood in the wood stove. They knew how to manage a wood stove. They knew that from the time they were six years old. I was in a camp. Uh, when I was six years old, approximately, and down on Belgrade Lake, Great Pond, Belgrade, Maine, the fellow who ran it was 
with Chester Twing and his son-in-law, Don Moser. Don was a, was my hero when I was a little kid. Don knew everything that I was interested in. He taught me how to paddle a canoe correctly and paddle in a straight line and not paddle back and forth every other stroke. And I got good at it. And he was pleased and I was pleased. And all the camps had Franklin stoves, exactly alike. And the, the stoves opened up with double doors. You could have it open as a fireplace and enjoy the cheery fire. Or you can close the doors and damp it back off on the damper and the little little air inlet uh, shuttle at the bottom. And that stove would get pretty hot. Warm the camp right up August or July, whenever you're there on vacation. And there was an engineer that came up, and he looked at the wooden stove. And now one of the camps, the stove, uh, the the Franklin stove was set up on on round logs, about 18 inches off the floor, big logs. Four feet of the Coleman stove were on the logs, and they, and they were big round logs, so they wouldn't the whole thing wouldn't topple over. And that was there for older folks who didn't want to have to get reached down and get down on their hands and knees and feed the stove. The stove was set at a convenient height for the older folks. So when people who were elderly made a reservation at camp, did get that, that cabin. And and uh, this engineer was there. And he had his slide roll and he had tables. And Burrington's Tables was the name of it. I was... I, I used Bur- Burrington's tables in, in 1960. Uh, they were tables of, of algebraic formulas and values and conversion factors and things that engineers just used to to uh, use all the time. All everything is available on a computer. You have to look stuff up in a book. I still have those books in the event that the computers should uh, become dysfunctional for some reason. Talk about that in a different show. But this engineer called Don aside up at the dining room one day and says, Don, he says, this is the most remarkable thing. He said, I've looked at the convection currents of the air in that camp, and that stove is the exact same height as for optimum thermal convection, so that the warm air rises in the stove and circulates across the ceiling, goes down the far side of the room and across the floor and back up at the stove again, and it's much more efficient than having it down on the floor level, because you get some dwell time for the air underneath the stove before it rises up through, and it's just, it's the most wonderful thing. How did you ever know how to design that? Don looked at him, looked around, and he says, that's the link I cut all my firewood. <laughs> That's it. Sometimes we just get lucky. But I was just a little kid when <laughs> Don talked about that. You know, he was impressed with the fact that this was absolutely the most efficient way to do it, and it was pure circumstance. Find find these things uh, in life. So, we had a shooting yesterday, some shootings. You call it a shooting with multiple victims, however you want to refer to it, in Oregon. 
And 20-year-old man shot the teacher through the door, glass door, fired through the door and shot the teacher in the head. Down went the teacher. Opened the door, stepped into the classroom, shot a few students, and told them all to get on the floor. Did that. So then he'd pick a student, stand up. The student would stand up and say, what, what religion are you? And depending on the answer, he would shoot the kid. There were a few older students there transitioning to other occupations and whatnot. But most of these students in junior college are 19 or 20 years old. This was a community college, what we used to call a junior college. Gets them a head start when they go to college, make up for what they didn't know when they were in high school. And they call, he called these students one at a time and shot them one after another after asking each student what their religion was. And this took time. And imagine the, the fear and the terror. Well, this was terrorism. Don't know the name of the shooter yet. We'll find out. But the fact that they have not announced the name is quite indicative in my mind because they don't like to announce the names of, of uh, shooters depending on what religion they happen to be. And our authorities in Washington, D.C. can't seem to pinpoint that problem. The shoe bomber, just before Christmas, flying into Boston, was a Muslim. The Beltway snipers, a decade ago, Muslims. That major in the Army at Fort Hood, shot a bunch of people, was a Muslim. The underwear bomber was Muslim. The USS Cole bombers were Muslims. The Madrid, Spain train bombers were Muslims. The Bali nightclub bombers in Indonesia were Muslims. London subway bombers were Muslims. The Moscow theater attackers were Muslims. The Boston Marathon bombers were Muslims. Pan Am Flight 93 bombers were Muslims. Air France and Tebby hijackers were Muslims. The American embassy takeover in Iran during the Jimmy Carter era were Muslims. Excuse me. I wish I had a mute button. The Beirut U.S. Embassy bombers were Muslims. The Libyan U.S. Embassy attack was Muslims. The Buenos Aires suicide bombers were Muslims. The Israeli Olympic team attackers were Muslims. The Kenyan U.S. Embassy bombers were Muslims. The Saudi Kobar Tower bombers were Muslims. The Beirut Marine Barrack bombers were Muslims. That was 1983. I believe it was October. The Bijan Russian school attackers were Muslims. Killed a lot of Russian kids. 
The World Trade Center bombers were Muslims. The Bombay and Mumbai, India attackers were Muslims. The Achille Laurel cruise ship hijackers were Muslims. That's the one where they threw the fellow in the wheelchair over the side. He's September 11, 2001, airline hijackers were Muslims. Some of them spent the night before in Portland. Went to a strip club, got on a plane in the morning, flew down to Boston, switched planes, and flew into the World Trade Center. Now think about this. The Buddhists living with Hindus, no problem. Hindus living with Christians, no problem. Hindus living with Jews, no problem. Christians living with Shintos, no problem. Shintos living with Confucians, no problem. Confucians living with Baha'is, no problem. Baha'is living with Jews, no problem. Jews living with atheists, no problem. Atheists living with Buddhists, no problem. Buddhists living with Sikhs, no problem. Hindus living with Baha'is, no problem. Baha'is living with Christians, no problem. Christians living with Jews, no problem. Jews living with Buddhists, no problem. Buddhists living with Shintos, no problem. Shintos living with atheists, no problem. Atheists living with Confucians, no problem. Confucians living with Hindus, no problem. But Muslims living with Hindus, problem. Muslims living with Buddhists, problem. Muslims living with Christians, big problem. Muslims living with Jews, problem. Muslims living with Sikhs, problem. Muslims living with Baha'is, problem. Muslims living with Shintos, problem. Muslims living with atheists, problem. Muslims living with Muslims, big problem. So this leads to Muslims are not happy in Gaza. They're not happy in Egypt. They're not happy in Libya or Morocco or Iran or Iraq. They're not happy in Yemen, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Lebanon, Nigeria, Kenya, or Sudan. The Somalis, who in Somalia are not happy, so where are they happy? They're happy in Australia. They're happy in England. They're happy in Belgium. They're happy in France. Muslims are happy in Italy. They really like Germany with all those blondes and Sweden, too. They're happy in the USA and Canada. They're happy in Norway and India. They're happy in almost every country that is not Muslim. And who do they blame? They don't blame their leadership. They don't blame themselves. They don't blame Islam. They blame the countries they're happy in. And they want to change the countries they're happy in. To be like the countries they came from where they were unhappy. So where are the, ma- where are the major organizations? What are they? Islamic Jihad. Major terror organization. 
ISIS, Islamic terror organization, Al-Qaeda, Islamic terror organization, Taliban, terror organization, Hamas, Hezbollah, Boko Haram, Al-Nusra, terror organizations, Abu Sayyaf, Al-Badar, Muslim Brotherhood, Lashkar-e-Taiba, Islamic terror organization, Palestine Liberation Front, PLO, Islamic terror organization, Ansaru, terror organization, Jamaa Islamaya, terror organization, Abdullah Azam Brigades, terror organization, the Islamic Courts in Somalia, terror organization. Now, this is the guy, their leader is the guy who lectured the Portland City Council on why only Muslim taxi drivers should get taxi licenses for the Portland International Jetport. They all have to be Muslims. And this guy with an orange goatee and a funny hat went before the, the, the Portland City Council, lectured them on why you couldn't let anybody except Muslims drive taxis at the Portland International Jetport. You can't make this stuff up. Now, we can't figure out who's causing the problem. Well, at least President Obama knows it's not the Muslims. Now he wants to bring in, this article says, 180,000 more Muslim refugees into our country. Are we that crazy? And while our whole press corps was distracted by the Pope, Obama turned loose from Gitmo, Osama bin Laden's right-hand man. We're not that crazy. But Barack Hussein Obama is that crazy. While the Pope was here, he turned loose Osama bin Laden's right-hand man from Gitmo. He was the one that our military should ne- said never, ever get out. Osama bin Laden turned him loose. And you look across Africa, Libya, Egypt, Iraq, all the countries over there, and they're all disrupted. They're all chaotic. Syria, and, you know, they're fighting each other. But the thing is that we're giving them the opportunity. You know, Libya was ruled by a dictator, Muammar Gaddafi. Omar and his buddy blew up an airliner over Scotland. And a bunch of Americans died. And a bunch of people on the ground in Lockerbie, Scotland, died when the flaming airplane came down in their village. But they caught the guy that did it. And they put him in jail in Scotland. Putting him in jail in Scotland was a gesture, nothing more. Because they turned him loose. He said, well, you know, he's he's not well, and we should turn him loose because he's not well. And they turned him, they put him on on a hospital stretcher, and they wheeled him out, and they wheeled him out into the ambulance, put him on the airplane, and flew him to Libya. He walked off the airplane in Libya, shaking his fist and rejoicing, and he was hugged by Muammar Gaddafi, and that's happened. You know, he was, he's, last I knew he was still alive. But I don't know now because 
Libya has changed. Libya has broken down into its normal tribal factions. They're a tribal society. They trace their own tribes' lineage back hundreds of years. And it's like the situation in Yugoslavia. Now, when Marshal Tito ran Yugoslavia, you had five different ethnic groups, and they were forced to coexist because if you cause trouble, you go to jail or you die. That's it. Marshal Tito ruled that place with an iron fist, and that's how get things done. You know, if you've got somebody that's ruthless, he can control a a uh, a compliant population. Well, that's how that's how most of the countries in the Middle East work. Well, you got Egypt, and uh, Egypt it was a tribal society. Egypt was more civilized than mo- most of the countries over there, but that civilization was before the Muslims took over. That was the end of their civilization, and they propped up Anwar Sadat, and they propped up. Uh, the Israeli premier at the time, and Jimmy Carter sat down with the three of them and they got together and they had a handshake agreement to not to kill each other for a while. And before that, uh, Anwar Sadat, Jimmy Carter, and that uh, pedophile from Gaza Strip there uh, got the Nobel Peace Prize. Why can't I think of that guy's name? and half his teeth, tobacco stains in his beard. I can picture the guy. I just can't think of his name. He's dead now. He died of a of a uh, of a communicable uh, venereal disease. What the heck was that guy's name? Anyway, he gone. He's a good terrorist now. But we upset Libya. And when Muammar Gaddafi was killed by some Libyans, they shot him with his own gold-plated pistol. And he was hiding in a culvert under a road when they finally found him. And I guess he got thirsty and came out or something. I don't know. But they they got him anyway. He was shot with his own gold-plated pistol. And then... At a place called Benghazi, we had a consulate, a little, it's a, it's a U.S. government office. It wasn't an, an, an embassy, it was a consulate. But we have, we meet with local political leaders, and it's, it's just, it's like a branch office of the embassy. And the ambassador, Chris Stevens, went from, from uh, the capital of Libya to Benghazi because uh, he wanted to talk to some of the local officials. We were taking Muammar Gaddafi's old weapons and transferring them to the pier at Benghazi and loading them on ships and sending them to Syria to be unloaded and and some of them went to, went to Turkey but we were unloading those weapons 
to give to the the Syrian opposition because we didn't like the dictator that uh, was running Syria, Bashar Assad. Bashir Assad, excuse me. So we were feeding them weapons. And Chris Stevens reportedly was going to blow the whistle because he didn't think we should be feeding these weapons to the opposition in Syria because ISIS was going to get the weapons. Now, whether Barack Hussein Obama gave these weapons directly to ISIS or whether he looked the other way and said he was sending them to the Syrian opposition and then ISIS could capture them very easily, doesn't make any difference. They never should have left Libya. We should never have shipped them into a hotspot. When you ship lots of weapons into a hotspot, you know, Things go downhill in a hurry. And that's what happened. And now Syria is, people are leaving Syria in great numbers. They had a four-man life raft, inflatable life raft. They put 13 people on it and tried to paddle across to Greece. And most of them made it. A three-year-old boy didn't make it. A three-year-old boy died in the crossing. And there's this man picking up this dead three-year-old boy. And, uh, you know, that, that's that's unfortunate. They took off and went out to sea in this life raft, and a three-year-old, I don't know if he died of, of hypothermia or, or why he died. But uh, he passed away, and there's a picture of the father holding this dead three-year-old boy on the, on the shore of Greece or one of the Greek islands. These people from the Middle East, uh, from Syria and Iraq, and various other tribal units in the area, Kurds, Yazidis, uh, are fleeing the area because ISIS is killing them. And they don't just shoot them, they crucify them, disembowel them, uh, chop their limbs off, torture them, burn them. And what they do to women is just as horrific. And they're just doing what Muslims do if they're not ruled by a tyrant who who puts a stop to these things. That's that's what the world that exists over there in the Middle East today. Benjamin Netanyahu is the prime minister of Israel, and they have the UN uh, has a. Periodically, they have a world conference at the U.N. and ties up traffic in New York for over a week. And Barack Hussein Obama met with Vladimir Putin at this conference, and they met for an hour and a half. No results of this meeting were announced other than that they they had a frank discussion where Putin told Obama... This is the way it's going to be, fella. That's it. Get used to it. This is not negotiable. He knows the position we're in. He knows our army is tired. And 
Our army is the size our army was in 1939 before World War II. It's pretty darn small today. We've mothballed a heck of a lot of equipment. We don't have the people left to maintain most of it properly. And it's unilateral disarmament. This is Obama's policy. We do not have a national budget. We haven't had a national budget since Bush was in office. I ran out this morning before the show and split a few sticks of wood to tide us over till the show is over, and then we're going to go out later. After the show, we're going to go out and we're going to split some wood. My wife enjoys that. Just putting up wood in the fall is an enjoyable thing. And those of you that know my wife uh, would be surprised to hear that she does that, but I've got photographs of it. <laughs> and... Uh, that's what we're going to be doing in another 10, 15 minutes. Just split a little wood. The only thing I cut here at camp is standing dead wood. It's already dry. Died on the stump. And uh, as the old timers say, it failed to prosper. It just lost out in the competition for sunlight and nutrients. For whatever reason, the other trees outran it and... I live, I say I live, at camp, we're in, a, we're in an old-growth forest. An old lady in her 90s by the name of Juanita Moores told me that this camp, her father-in-law told her that this camp was referred to as the home place. And it had never been cut. And you walk through my woods, and there are no stumps, except for the ones that I cut for standing deadwood. When Sir Walter Raleigh arrived in North America, he wrote back to England that you could ride a horse through the forest at a full gallop. And the British, English, couldn't believe it. Just could not believe it. How can you ride a horse through the forest at a full gallop? I mean, it's a, you know, their forests were all uh, sequential growth. They didn't have any old-growth forest, except the king had a few places on the estates where they'd go hunting. But basically, they cut. They needed to cut all the wood they could for firewood. And the king kept some some tall, straight trees for, for masts for ships. And they came here, they come up into Maine, and they went around, they put an arrow on the tree trunk. And saved, this one's saved. This tree belongs to the king. Well, a fellow who's... <laughs> whose land the tree was on would cut the tree down just to irritate the king. That's the way it was. But they had the king's trees, and they used an awful lot of ship's masts came out of Maine. The masts for the USS Constitution, sitting at, at the pier at Boston Harbor, those masts came out of Maine. And there are still pines like that in Maine. Not not a lot, but there's still some good good pine. Most of the land we have in Maine was privately owned, and we had the the highest. We already still have the highest percentage of forest of any state. You look at Washington, Oregon, places like that. They've got some big forests. Northern California, 
but they also have some vast open areas, natural open areas. The wind comes in off the Pacific, it blows up the Cascades, and as the as the wind goes up the Cascades, the atmospheric pressure drops, the water condenses, and it rains on those slopes. I was worked in British Columbia for a while, and my wife came out. We rented a car and rode up through British Columbia, went up through the valley where the Fraser River is, and broke out into the plain there. And there's cactuses and desert. All the water comes in off the Pacific, moisture, falls out of the sky going up the upslopes, and when the air goes down the other side, it's dry. And they have a desert in British Columbia. I just I was just astonished at that. Had no idea. I get surprised by nature on a regular basis. I've been a lot of places, the tropics in Vietnam, places like that, Panama. And and uh the Antarctic, you know, I've been a lot of places, different natural habitats. But it's you get surprised once in a while. Chile just had another big earthquake, two of them in one week, as a matter of fact. Big earthquake. They just got, they'll make good progress in fixing all their bridges. Chile is a little narrow country right between the Pacific Ocean and the Andes Mountains. And you can stand there on the beach on the Pacific and look up at the Andes at the snow. It's, uh, it's an interesting country. And it's all north and south. So they have a lot of ship traffic going up and down their own coast. But to build a highway from one one end of Chile to the other is a huge undertaking because all that snow water runs down out of the Andes in the springtime. Their spring is our fall. So it's spring down there right now. And the water rushes down through there. The rivers get flooded. It happens every year. It's pretty predictable. So they have to build the bridges way up in the air. And uh, it's an interesting country. Talk about the economics of Chile sometime. Because the import duty on an automobile is 100%. So they're going to import a four-wheel drive pickup that costs $38,000. The import duty is $38,000. Because the Chileans know that that $38,000 is leaving their country and it's not coming back. Not right away, anyway. But you can walk into Hannaford's and buy a pound of grapes for 99 cents, and they flew that pound of grapes here from from Chile. So the money does go back into Chile, but not in the quantities that it leaves. And that's what's happening to our nation. You know... We buy a microwave oven for forty nine ninety nine or thirty nine ninety nine at Walmart, and that money leaves the country. It doesn't come back. And because it doesn't come back, we have ninety four million Americans between the ages of eighteen and sixty five not working. So here we've come full circle here within the last hour. We talked about a lot of different things. But the reason it's so easy to clear my throat and talk for an hour, is that it's all connected. It's all related. Whether we're talking about the Penobscot River, where we we 
by the end of the year, we may have no paper mills running on the Penobscot River for the first time in over 120 years. Think about that. We've got the most forested state in the entire nation. We can't keep a paper mill running the state of Maine. What's wrong with that picture? Big factor is the Maine legislature because manufacturers don't want to to, to uh, operate in an area that they can't control. I'm not talking about controlling. I'm talking about just being able to control their own asset. If they can't control the asset they own, the board of directors isn't going to let them own it here. That's it. Big flaw. We can fix that. Governor Paul LePage would like to fix it. We've got a legislature that can't figure out the difference between a recess and an adjournment. And that's about it. It is. 10 o'clock, straight up. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, The Conscious of Maine, broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. We have a gorgeous string of weather. If this Hurricane Joaquin doesn't kick up and ruin the latter part of this coming week, so we're looking good. And gorgeous weather. Moose season is open. Be careful. Be safe. Take care of the moose in a hurry. God bless. Wise men follow him. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.